Good morning. Good morning, my friends out there. It is Sunday, July the 24th, 2022, Bo Blimpdoc. It is almost 8.30 a.m., and we are doing our third episode in the Breaking Bad, Let's Think About It in Philosophical Terms series. And, you know, we're trying to align each episode with the season, and we're talking about season three today. Um, on, the, on the line with me is my good friend Seattle Mike, and he has his dog with him, his dog with him. And so if you hear any barking or eating of the bone or whatever, well, that's why. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing great, Dan. Really, really, really good. Um, yeah, I feel like I'm doing better than I deserve, which is, uh, which is something. Sitting out here in the middle of the forest today, sun's rising up through the trees, birds are singing, got my dog cuddling me here. Um, picked up a barn cat yesterday. Um, my uh, son and his girlfriend adopted a cat a couple months ago uh, from a rescue, and she is just too wild. She keeps biting them and not like biting them hard. Um, and, I, and I just think her hunting instinct is too strong. So I locked her up in my shop last night, and uh, I needed a barn cat for, for that place because I've got a, a vermin problem out there. <laughs> so um, hope she's doing okay. And uh, I'll, I'll, last thing I need is another animal, but there it is. I think it was her last stop. So I got to give her over to nature. Other than that, doing great. Well, those barn cats are always really exciting, you know. <laughs> Not exciting, but just the thing. that's what's on my mind. I'm sorry. It's okay, dude. So before we get into it, I was I was looking at Zero Hedge the other day, and this picture of this dude showed up. Um, he's the IEA chief. That's the International Energy Agency chief. And what does it say here? His name is... Um, Byroll. His last name is Byroll. B-I-R-O-L. And I think his first... Is that his name or is that something else? Byroll. Hold on a second. Yeah, I guess his last name is Byroll or something. Um, but if you look at a picture of him, and I have a link in the notes, and this is kind of random, he looks a lot like Bob Don. This guy. Like, I saw that. I mean, it's not exactly Bob Don, but when I... <laughs> When I was reading the article, I was thinking, fuck, holy shit, did somebody, like, move the air fresheners around? Fuck. It's Bogdan. Yeah. Yeah. I don't Poor know. Poor Bogdan. Poor Bogdan. He gets beat up on, and maybe for legitimate reasons, maybe not. We really don't know a lot about him, except for he's the mean guy that ran the car wash in Breaking well, Bad, you know. it's almost like... He he was transported to a different time, and and he he had these expectations about what it was gonna you know be to like live there, and his frustration his expectations are constantly frustrated by this shithole that he found himself trying to make a, build a business and a life in in the United States. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, he you know when they when they scam him and send out the the guy to. I don't know if I'm giving away the next season, but send out the guy that poses the state agent and oh, yeah. uh, you know, doing the environmental testing. He, he thinks that he can, you know, well, uh, what, what, 
does he, he kind of believes he could just argue the guy's case. Like, no, I've done nothing wrong. I, everything's good. Do it again. <laughs> Tell me what law I've broken. You know, he, he thinks that he can just argue his way out of it, but that that's just not how it works. E- even if that was true, right? Even if that was actually a government agent. Um, and I just think he he's a tragic figure in some ways. Well, you know, so I think he's Romanian in the show. Like, Bogdan is supposed to be Romanian, I think. I don't know if it was that or Bulgarian, but I think he was one or the other. And he kind of, it makes you think of somebody living 600 years ago, um, <laughs> arguing their case with an Ottoman Empire bureaucrat. Like, right. you know what I mean? Like, yep. somebody from Istanbul is coming to visit, and oh boy, you don't have all your papers, and... You didn't pay all your taxes and crap. It it, it kind of seems like that. I don't know. Well, and, and the Ottoman Empire, of course, you know, was, um, I mean, a paper tiger for most of its history. And they, you know, it, there was some custom that held it together, and that was about it. Well, so, yeah, yeah. So if some, if some uh, you know, bureaucrat came to visit your... Um, the day of your whatever local, you know, potentate, they just put on a show. <laughs> and then when the guy left, they did whatever they wanted. Well, that's, and, how, that's how it works. And, and isn't that kind of, I mean, that's one of the stories that occurs in season three, I believe. And that is what you mentioned, the use of that deception to force Bogdan to sell his car wash. You know, they, they, they hire a dude, a, a dude that Saul Goodman knows, one of his dudes, and he pretends to be an inspector, as you point out, and he goes there and he says, oh, crap, you don't, you, this is a problem, and this is a problem, and this is a problem. But what's interesting about this is that this isn't the government. This is people using the stupidity of the system to do something that the system didn't even approve of. I mean, in some ways, that's the best definition of decay. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That's, that's a good, really, really good point. Yeah, he, I mean, he didn't help himself either, <laughs> you know, um, he, he just wore his, his frustrations on his sleeve and um, let us spill out into how he dealt with everybody. Yeah, he didn't so, seem, yeah, he wasn't a very, that, con- yeah. yeah, right. That's what makes him a tragic figure is that the, the, the part of him that could, could, you know, helps him to be successful is the same thing that is his downfall. That kind of, to me, is the definition of a tragic figure. No, I think that's probably true. So before we get into the main topic questions, and for our listeners, Mike and I try to kind of stay within a theme, but there's a bit of jumping around because there's a lot in this show. Before we get into the main questions, I want to pose a basic sort of high-level question, um, not necessarily the most critical question for Season 3, but this is a question that does come out of Season 3, and I think it comes out of living life today and and the question is this why is it and it's a two-part question really why is it people assume that forgiveness equals acceptance that's the first question basically and the other question is why is it people believe acceptance is now a human right like why is it people think forgiveness equals acceptance mike um yeah, that, 
that's that's an interesting question. Um, well, forgiveness has the idea of forbearance, and it, so if you have something to forgive somebody for, that means that they owe you some kind of restitution. And I mean, it might be something very minor. It might it might be it might not even be anything tangible that, that you're that you're owed in terms of restitution but you're, you might be owed you know uh, uh an apology and some kind of a an explanation and putting yourself at the person's you know moral mercy um but forgiveness and forbearance are very very closely related in terms of how the bible uh portrays them accepting something um, is, you know, accepting somebody else's, uh, lifestyle or, um, their, their philosophy or their behavior, that is, uh, something completely different. And I don't think it really has anything to do with, um, forgiveness. Well, and I agree, I agree with you. And before we go too far, I want to read a couple definitions. These aren't the only definitions. You'll find many. But here's a definition from the Mayo Clinic of what forgiveness is. Generally, however, it involves a decision to let go of resentment and thoughts of revenge. Okay, and I like that. That's a really simple, to-the-point definition of forgiveness, that you are letting go of resentment and letting go of the revenge thing. Yeah, it's great to have restitution as part of it. But forgiveness doesn't necessarily require restitution, Mike. I mean, a person can forgive and never be restored by in the, in the earthly sense. They're restored in heaven, but in the earthly sense, you could be ripped off and you could forgive somebody, but you might never get that money back. Right. That's what I'm saying is I, I think for, forgiveness is the forbearance of me executing um, the... The, the judgment, right? Right. That, and, and I'm saying I'm not saying that you can't make the judgment in your mind, but then of you actually following through and and taking measures in your own hand to uh, force the restitution. Okay. That, that's yeah. what forgiveness okay. is. Yeah. So it's a forbearance of that process. So forbearance um, is another way of saying letting go of something. Like I, you owe me money, but I, I no longer hold you to that contract. You know, exactly. I, I, I'm practicing forbearance. I am letting right. go of that obligation that you have to me. Okay, you have an obligation, but I'm letting go of it. Um, right. And resentment builds up because people feel like there's an obligation that's been unmet. Now, before we continue, I want to read a basic definition of the word acceptance: the action of consenting to receive or undertake something offered. So, to accept something, if I say here. Here's a plate of food. You take the plate of food. That's one kind of acceptance. But the second part is the action or, or process of being received as adequate or suitable, typically to be admitted into a group. So one part of acceptance is taking what you're given. But another part of acceptance is being accepted into a group. And in a lot of ways, that is, it, it's a useful definition but it does put you in a position of kind of wondering, okay, well then, what is a good group to be a member of, right? Um, what, is, what is considered to be the in-group, the out-group? You know, 
we have a lot of groups in any kind of ordinary society. There are lots of cliques, lots of groups, and acceptance in part, in this sense, says, oh, I get to be a member of your group, okay? No matter what. Let's say, you know, you and I are Christians and we form a church. And we form a church that has a building. And, you know, we don't, we don't harass people. We don't practice any type of hatred, but we preach a kind of gospel where some people may feel like their lifestyles are not accepted. Does somebody have a right to invade that group and point guns at us and say, you must accept? You see, that's, if you ask me, that's where the United States of America is today. I'm not, listen, for everybody listening, I'm not a fan of racists, okay? I'm not a fan of the KKK. There's this one game this kid in the household plays, um, friend, my friend's girlfriend's daughter called Animal Crossing. And every once in a while, this music list pops up and there's two Ks and everything. And I said, oh boy, add one more. But I'm not a big fan of racism. Not a big fan of any type of neo-Nazi bullshit. I consider it a weak philosophy, a very weak philosophy. And I think if Nietzsche were alive today, he would agree. It's a weak philosophy. It doesn't really promote anything rational. It's just all fear, fear of the other, which we all have. We all have fear, but that doesn't mean we should live in fear. But there's a big difference between saying, I accept, excuse me, I, I, I respect, and, and in a sense, I accept that you can live your life the way you want to. But, you, but that doesn't mean you're going to be my friend. And if I form a Christian church with a friend of mine, it doesn't mean that everyone's going to be welcoming. You know, I, I don't know how else to put it. It's like, at some level, groups do shun others. They do. And we can debate whether the shunning is is justified or not, but it, it's something that occurs, doesn't it, Mike? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you just think of this anthropologically, it, it is a fact. It is a it is a existential fact that communities develop starting at the at the basic family level, and that family forms a tribe then they might intermarry with nearby people and then those that marriage might might produce additional people who expand the tribe and so the those are the people that you can trust those are the people that you can you know put your put the hand, put your life into um, because you know them you have a long experience with them sort of like what we talked about um, on a previous episode you know the the more that you, more experience you have with somebody, the more you know them, the more you understand if who they say they are is consistent with their actions. Um, and that's just a fact. And so if people are intermarrying and having babies, they're going to look like each other. That's just... Right. <laughs> that they're going to have similar skin color. They're going to have uh, uh, similar uh, body types. Um, you're, you're always going to have outliers. It's going to happen. That's uh, just that's all embedded in our genetic code, or however you want to say it. Um, but that that's a fact. The other thing is that you can form tr- uh, tribes through circumstance and trauma. Um, but the way that our the way that the state does it is that they traumatize us for control. And, and try to get us to turn our tribe in some kind of other weird way, which is, you know, red versus blue or whatever. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of I'm kind of meandering, but that that's just a fact. That that doesn't necessarily mean just because somebody is tribal and is going to be fearful of an uh, you know suspe- suspicious of an outsider, it doesn't make them a racist if outsiders come and they have different skin color that they point out that well you're a black person I don't know you. Um, they could be a, a white person that comes into the you know. The, the community and they say, well, I, I don't know you. So I think that it's unfortunate. Um, a part of me kind of believes that it was intentional that introducing that into our, our history was intentional to keep us divided um, in terms of the, the idea of skin color, right? Well, I mean, there's evidence from the Old Testament that there are curses that involve humans being able to relate to each other. And Jesus is able to give us this new dispensation where a lot of this can be remedied, but you still have that old baggage. You know what I mean? The, the, the many languages, the many tribes, we're never going to be, except in the end times when the Antichrist will attempt it, we're never going to be the one unified people on earth. We, we might be and, in heaven, but not on earth. Yeah, and if you read very early in the Old Testament, he talks about... Um, the, the narrator talks about there being uh, these people were, you know, did this type of thing, and these people over here did this type of thing. There was um, variability and and diversity from the very beginning. And that that's uh, because we are a limited individual instance of God's image. The, the way that the human race fulfills God's image in, in more of a holistic sense is by being diverse by by being a diverse expression of it and the satanic urge is to make us all alike which is the way that you turn you know your community into a sort of hell is by making everybody making sure that everybody's very much alike that's absolutely true i think yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna take us back to the to the topic of breaking bad and and take this question and, and just go specific and say as a comment, wouldn't you agree that in a lot of ways, and maybe this is just fictional, because I've never been, well, I, I was going to say I've never been a member of a gang, but I was in the military, so I was, so I can speak to it a little bit, but isn't it kind of true that these gangs sort of represent, in a lot of ways, the ancient means by which people, as you pointed out, organize themselves? Like, if, if you wanted a kind of time capsule of sociology and say, how did people organize themselves and understand themselves in terms of a society, you know, before they started building cities and piling up grain? In a lot of ways, these drug gangs are kind of like that. They're, they are tribal, aren't they? They are, uh, but they're, they're, uh, and they're also founded on violence, um, which, uh, you know, there's a, Anthropologically speaking, there is a connection there between violence and the sacred, um, and and using violence as a sort of way to uh, have a, a cathartic experience for the community, and then also the trauma of that violence bonds you together. It does, and it also the violence becomes the token, the acceptance, the way that you become recognized as a member of that tribe. 
you know, right. whether it's basic gang members set, being told you need to go out and kill this person, you need to go out and beat this person up, or whether it's somebody like Walter White, who again, this is the end of season one, takes his fulminated mercury and just throws it to the guy's face, basically, and says, here I am. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to skip all those other murders and I'll just get right to the point. I can use violence. I can be, if not a member of your tribe, I can be respected, you know? Right. And the other thing is this. You mentioned the word sacred, but one of the things I've noticed about these types of arrangements is some people are always going to be throwaway. Like, nobody starts a war over a pawn. Um, well, except for Jesse. I mean, that's where he goes off the rails. Like, he, he goes off the rails because a pawn gets killed. You know, Combo. Combo gets taken out. But in general, you don't start wars over pawns. But you, you will start a war over a sacred, protected person. Somebody who is protected. And a lot of these tribes, these you know, these criminal tribes... Those protected people are part of a familial line, you know, as long as that line is in power. But at any point in time, there are other families always waiting in the wings to be in charge. But again, there's this big distinction between who you can kill and who you can't kill. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, well, if you have a, a community that's found, that's um, formed around... Uh, violence it becomes a, a part of your ritual so you know hey you got to go you know take out this other gang member over here or whatever and, and then you're going to be accepted into it it that's that because that's a part of the it's a very you know uh human sinful just you know distorted corrupted uh sacred ritual well, and you know it's funny because think about um, th think about um, you know what's his name uh, his brother-in-law the DEA agent Hank okay one of the as, as I understand it one of the sort of forbidden or taboo kinds of killing traditionally amongst gangs is to kill the official it's not to say they won't beat up the official or make fun of the official they'll count coup. They'll do that kind of behavior that looks like it could end up being killing. But the reality is a lot of these groups would say taboo, don't kill the cop, don't kill the, the, the special agent. And, and so in some ways, his, his death is also really interesting, isn't it? Like, you yeah. know, in fact, and that's the other thing, too. The way in which those DEA agents were killed during that explosion, you know, and this is going this this is again something that we end up talking about here um mainly yeah you know i think we mainly talk about it uh in season 3 but a little bit of se season is it a little bit of season 3 mainly that that hank gets knocked out anyways um yeah it's in season 3 i think yeah so um yeah it is season 3 sorry i got a little bit mind scattered there but um the way Hank goes to El Paso and experiences that death, that destruction, that explosion going off, um, it's almost like he's being told the old rules don't apply. Because again, it does seem like for a lot of organized crime, tribal criminals, you're not supposed to kill the cops. But then that rule periodically gets broken. Yeah. Yeah, when... 
when when the the cops step over into that other world, then they they run the risk of that being of that target. Violence return, yeah, that violence returning home. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a um, you know return to sender, right? And that, maybe and maybe that's where way. organized crime is changing or becoming more realistic because. I think in the last few decades, the taboo against killing cops has been changing a lot. Cops get bought out, but I think a lot of cops do end up getting killed because ultimately it's not like it used to be when it comes to these tribes. And that also can be a sign of weakness. I'm not, try I'm not defending the government. I'm simply saying that a lot of groups on the edge of the empire no longer fear it the way they used to. Like, yeah, I think, there's a, I think you're right. And I think there's also a tension there under the surface. So these two groups depend on each other for their survival. So, so without the, without the cops pursuing this illegal item, uh, and creating a artificial market for it, that's highly, highly profitable and, and, you know, um, overly expensive from what it would be if it was just produced as a commodity then that enables these the, the lifestyle of these criminals of these of these uh, uh gangsters right oh, yeah. and so they need the cops and do the cops really want to eradicate all the gangsters i mean they might say they do they might believe with all their heart that they do but then what well, it's a, it's a cash machine. I mean, if they did get yeah. right, if they did get rid of all the gangsters, they'd be out of a job. And, and think of all the money they get from seizures, dude. I mean, it's exactly. a, at a at a low level, it's a cash machine for a lot of those officials. They, maybe they're not all bad, but I bet a lot of them are crooked, and a lot of them take a, a hundred dollars here, a thousand bucks there. Why not? They probably right. do that almost every day, and so for them, their additional income goes away if all that activity changes. Right. And it might not be something that's conscious at the lower level, but at the, at the upper levels of the organizations on both sides, it has to be something that's that's conscious. It has to be. Yeah. Because well, those are the people that have time to think about strategy. And part of that strategy has to be, hey, how do I grow my organization? Well, if I'm going to grow my organization, I, I need this opposing force to... Um, you know, enable me to grow my organization. It's kind of no, weird. So if you is. step over the line, and so for some reason, how they handled this Tortuga guy was seen as stepping as being as uh, stepping over the line, um, because they they turned him into an informant. Yeah. So there's this, I think, in some ways, tragic figure named Gale 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 Bedeker Gale Bedeker. I think. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. What was his name? Gail. Gail Benneker. Yep. Because there was a Benneke too in the show, and I don't. Yeah, Ted. Uh, Ted Benneke. And, <laughs> well, Gail. In some ways, they're both a little tragic, but Gail is kind of tragic because he talks about in the first his first sort of meeting with Walt in the working lab. You know, after they get done and drink champagne, he talks about how he's a libertarian and he just wants to make good drugs for people. But that's the way you would talk if you were an actual free market. And, and that's one of the tragic things about Gale is he just doesn't understand the game. Like he thinks he's playing a game that's like free enterprise, but in reality, he's in that tribal warfare. 
Now Walter, yeah, he, he Walter gets it. Walter understands it. He 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 understands that it's about building empires, you know, ultimately. But for Gale, it's like he just wants to make a really good crystal meth, sell it and make some money. That's it. Yeah. I think you could you could classify Gale as an ingenue. Um which is a I don't there's not really a uh direct English translation for that word, but it's an innocent or unsophisticated person. Yeah. Uh, somebody who's not like naive. Um, and I think I, I kind of see him as just a, just a victim, just a plain old simple victim of, uh, on the same level as uh, Jimmy in and out in a way, somebody who doesn't fit in, um, who is probably never going to fit in. And is uh, you know sort of singular um, in his. Uh, uh, hey, Dad, can we take a, a pause? I'm getting a. Uh, my dad keeps calling me. Okay. And and I'll call you right back. Okay. I'm sorry. It's okay. So we're back with Mike. We had to take a little brief break there. It stuff happens. Um. And hey. go ahead. Thank you, Dan. So we, uh, I think we can put a, uh, uh, pen on the forgiveness and acceptance. I think that one thing I do want to say about that is that acceptance involves restoration of the, um, relationship to some degree. Um, you can forgive somebody and not want to see them. And I think that the primary reason why you want to practice forgiveness is for yourself, not necessarily for the other person. That's something that that other person has to come to terms with. And if you want restoration of the relationship, you really have to work on um, providing, if you're the person that that did, did wrong, you have to work on what sort of restitution is needed, what sort of behavior and consistency is needed from you to, to show that the, the person's acceptance is going to be paid, paid off, right? Right. I don't know if that makes any sense. Maybe I'm babbling. No, it does. And I know we were talking about Gale there for a bit, and I just wanted to just close off the Gale conversation and just say this, at yep. least for now, that Gale believed he was in one kind of world, and he wasn't. He, his paradigm didn't match. Yeah, I think you know calling him an ingenue is 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 appropriate. But then that's what it, being an ingenue perhaps is. Maybe that's what being naive is: is thinking you're in one kind of world, but you're really in another. Um, a lot of people in this country believe they're in one kind of world, and that's why they still vote. And they're yeah. not. They're not. They're like Gail. Yeah. They're they're not necessarily going to get killed, but they're but they're but they're they're not off limits either. They're people that if they become victims of something, like, for example, uh, psychological warfare and its aftermath, it's okay. That was their duty in society, to be naive, to believe they're in one kind of world and not another, and, you know, to basically be sacrificed. Um, Yeah, yeah. Dan, if I could bring a personal aspect to this, I I see some of myself in Gail um, in, in terms of that. And I, I could describe my, almost my entire working life as somebody who 
believed that if I showed up every day and if I worked hard and if I was a good employee and if I really brought value that I would be rewarded. And that's just not the case. Um, I've spent most of my working life pouring my productivity and my creativity and my ideas into somebody else's pocket and always being paid on the sort of, uh, what, what do they call that when you, when you're betting to be paid on the future, uh, paid on the come. Yeah. Um, you know, always, <laughs> always some future, you know, yes. Uh, Hey, you know, yeah, we can talk about making you a partner. Um, we, we can talk about, you know, doing some equity payment, equity compensation for you later. <laughs> and then it never comes that day never comes. There's always some excuse. Well, you know, this project didn't work out this time. So, you know, maybe now's not the time to talk about that. So I, I spent most of my working life working in this, in, in a systems that weren't what I thought they were. And, you know, that's completely on me. Oh, it's not hard though, because I was in that world too. I mean, it's why I went into the military. I believed this, this reality was one thing and not another. I did. I thought that this country was one thing and not another, and it turned out to be the other thing. And you feel stupid. One of the step, one of the one of those processes you go through is you do feel dumb. You know, you feel stupid because you had put your faith in something that turned out to be a complete and total lie in a lot of ways. And I did. A lot of people I know have and continue to. And you know, like all types of scams, some people do get paid off. Some people do get get the payday. They get the money. It, it's it's the only way it can work. It's just that everybody can't. That's the key. Like they'll 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 set it up in such a way that you'll see some examples of people really really you know, go, getting big so to speak. But it can't work that way for everybody. They know that. And the other thing is this. You know, you talked about a lot of basic work values, but the incentives at the macro scale in our current economic situation are not about principles and values around hard work or quality or any of that. It's about pump and dump. And if, if you have a pump and dump scheme, you're going to be successful. You'll make a lot of money really fast. But if you go to somebody and say, I want to start this value-based business that's going to build this really cool product and within five years we'll be here, nobody wants to hear that, Mike. They don't want to hear yeah. that. Okay, they want to no. hear how can I instantly deploy this as a financialized entity and make instant riches, instant money now. You know, how can I do that? You know, think about Walter White. There's Walter White, the chemistry the chemistry teacher. Actually, and there's more than one Walter White, I think. More than two actually. There's Walter White, the chemistry teacher that we meet at the beginning of the show. There's Walter White, the researcher, who for whatever reason ended up exiting that world, and that's prior to the show even starting. And then there's Walter White, who's really Heisenberg, okay? You know, and we can all debate which one of those people, in terms of the character he is at any given point in time. But Walter White, the chemistry teacher, believed some of the bullshit, or at least he tried to convince himself to believe it, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and maybe that's what felt, maybe that's one of the, ways in which we can find it plausible that he ended up where he ended up. Because when you feel betrayed and you're unable to do things like forgive people, but you just feel total betrayal 
And in this case, it's almost like society betrayed him because here he was, this good guy teaching high school, and he gets cancer. And, you know, maybe there's no one to blame for that, but when you're going to die, it feels comfortable to find some reason for it. But he goes off the rails, and it ends up being a, everybody lied to me, ergo, I'm just going to do what everyone else does, get rich fast, get mine fast. Yeah. You know, that's, there's no work, there's a work ethic in what he does. And you could say, well, cost quality delivery, he's interested in those things. But he's interested in those things for this drug crystal meth. He's not interested in those things for some other purpose. And you do get the idea, I think, that the guy is smart enough, he could have done something else. Like he, he might have worked on cancer, you know, for example. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. And, you know, uh, uh, he, he doesn't really have a work ethic. I think what he has is he has an aesthetic that he's pursuing. And so if, if he can be in charge of that aesthetic, then he is willing to work hard. But as, as soon as he loses complete control of that, then he, he is diverted into trying to regain control of that, of the pursuit of that aesthetic. Um, and that aesthetic, I think, ends up sort of being the, the, the pursuit and the protection of that aesthetic ends up being a pursuit of power in and of itself. It, it sort of gets replaced at some point. Yeah. You know, uh, he objects to the, the camera and then, then there's, so there's cameras and then he thinks the place is bugged and then they, they replace the, the, the static cameras with one that moves around <laughs> moves around and, and they have this back and forth portrayal of where he's just driving him crazy right yeah. and he doesn't have absolute control over that aesthetic and it that, that's what i think really drives him drives him uh kind of crazy well and that's and that's the thing is like you it's hard to, it's hard to pigeonhole that anthropologically speaking but it's almost like he he does ultimately want to be the king. He wants to be in charge. That's what he's going for. Before he dies, everyone will know that he was in charge. Yeah. You know? And, yep. and, and there, there's that scene, I think this might be in a later season, where, or maybe it's not, where uh, Hank believes that uh, Gail was Heisenberg. And, or is it at the end of season three? Yeah, it was basically uh, as the season ends, actually season four. Well, yeah, I think I think I think it could be the end of season three. You're right, but he ends up getting that lab notebook from the homicide detective. Right. You know, he's injured. He's playing with his rocks, and one of his friends from you minerals. Know, yeah, minerals, Dan. Minerals. Come on, they're minerals. They're minerals. <laughs> he's playing with his minerals, and that detective right. comes by and says, "Hey, can you help me out?" And he hands him that lab book that was Gale's, and it's like, holy crap, this this could be Heisenberg. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see, I'm looking at my notes here. Yeah, I don't remember when that is, but um, that 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 does happen. Uh, well, it's how he it's how he starts getting interested in. Um, 
you know, what's his name? Um, Gus, Gustavo Frain. Because right? he finds because that flyer in there for, you know, the chicken place. A napkin. A napkin, yeah. A, a, a napkin or one of those little paper paper uh, uh, tray, yeah, tray, tray liners. Yeah, yeah, placemats or Something whatever. Like that. Paper, yep, yeah. Yep. And then there's, uh, you know, something written on it. Yeah. Um, I don't remember what and it there's was. Fi- and there's Gus Freen's fingerprints on it. Right. Oh, no, he goes and gets Frings. I think, now I think we're getting into season four. Now, that is season four a little bit, yeah. That yeah, is. he goes and, and obtains, surreptitiously obtains uh, Frings' fingerprints from the cup. And... Uh, and then compares them to the unknown fingerprints that were found at Gail's house because Fring paid him a visit uh, just just before he died, and yeah. just to, just to say, hey, how quickly can you take over the lab? Um, <laughs> and he's like, well, you know, a few cooks, okay, two cooks, well, okay, one. <laughs> and, then, and, and shouldn't that have been cook. a? Shouldn't that have been like if he had any notion of the world he was in? Shouldn't that have been a red flag for him too? Like you know, it should have been. In the very least, go get it. If you don't own a handgun, go get one. Right. Right. Yeah. Poor, poor like, Gale. What are they gonna do? They, Walt would just. Uh, this is a guy you're dealing with that would just go quietly into the night. Hey, oh, I'm fired from the meth lab. I'm. Oh, okay. I'll just go do my own thing now. Like, <laughs> I mean, that's really, really sort of naive. And, uh, he probably believed that. He probably really believed, well, I guess they're going to fire Walt. Like, what? <laughs> what does that mean in the world you're you're existing in? That's right. But So I've got a couple of ideas where to go next, but is there something yeah. you'd like to talk about? No, we could just kind of... Go down the list, and and I'll follow your lead. Okay, so some of this, um, some of this that we've talked about so far deals with a lot of tribal stuff. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where it's like I'm trying to find something that will tend us in a slightly different direction, and you know. I'm I'm a little bit lost here, dude. Honestly, where to go next? Because we, there's 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 the thing about the drug therapist, but we dealt with the whole you know acceptance thing. And I don't know if we want to go back there. Um, yeah, I I like that. Um, I think there's a lot there. So he's uh, Jesse's in um, the rehab center. Yep. And <clears throat> excuse me. And this uh, guy, I can't remember that actor's name. He was on a, didn't he play a guy who was in recovery on a sitcom of some sort? He might have. I mean, he's a, yeah. he's, a he's an actor I've seen do other stuff. Right. Um, I think he actually did play some guy that was a former, <laughs> anyway. Uh, so he talks about self-acceptance and... Um, denigrates self-improvement you know he they're they're sitting around circle who wants to improve themselves here you know who wants to be a better person and they you know some people sort of raise their hand and you know it's a typical type of thing you see and he says no that's not why you're here you're here to accept yourself 
And I really thought that, I thought about that. I'm like, hmm, is that, is that really, I mean, I don't, I don't know what I think about that. It, I, I suppose in a way, but you know, like, should I be, I just got to be the best serial killer. You know, like I'm a serial killer. That's who I am. I mean, is that, you know, I'm a psychopath. So well, that's, that's why this if whole... I want to live a happy life, I right. just have to go with it. I mean, that, that's a really weird sort of uh, way, way to, to tackle that that problem. Well, that's why I kind of got stuck on that basic question at the beginning. And I do think it's a worthy thing to talk about. The distinction, not just between forgiveness and acceptance, but what does what is the purpose of acceptance, you know, really? Other than the basic purpose of saying you're either in the group or you're outside of the group, you know? But the way you just described it, you know, think about it. Um, self, if self-acceptance is saying... I am a wretched person, so I'm simply going to accept that and be that. How do you compare and contrast that with something like, for example, the story, you know, the story of, from the New Testament of Christ encountering the woman being put to death through stoning? And what does, she say, what does he say to her after that whole incident? Now go forth and sin no more, correct? Right. Okay, it's not go forth and keep sinning. If Christ thought it was okay to do the things that she was doing, he cried, I believe Jesus was pretty good with speaking his mind. And he would have said, now go and stop doing this. No, or go, you know, go ahead and keep doing it or just go. He would have just said go. But no, he said, go forth and sin no more. So part of forgiveness in a Christian sense is also being willing to tell your own truth and not just say it's okay that you're you know you're doing what you're doing it's not okay you know you, you part of the forgiveness might even be educating somebody like how do you how do you forgive someone in that direct sense without telling them what you think right you know anybody can say i forgive you but how do you know what you're being forgiven for right yeah there's the um, the idea of self of forgiving yourself, accepting the forgiveness, and then forgiving yourself so you can not be stuck in returning to that sin. You know, uh, the gospel kind of flips that on its head and says, because you've been forgiven and because of this unlimited grace that you've been given. That provides you with the reason to turn around and live a life of grace, peace, humility, forgiveness, right? Th those things. Right. And the things against which there are no laws. And uh, I, for, I can't think of the list off the top of my head, but um, it, in, instead of, you know, that, so the, the acceptance there is the acceptance that I'm unworthy of the forgiveness, but I have it anyway. And because I've been given that gift, I have to, I should, um, turn away and sin no more. Right. And one of the, one of the dynamics I find interesting between Walter and his wife, Skylar in season three is how eventually 
you know, on one level, you'll, you'll say eventually towards the end of the season, you might say, oh, they patched things up. And so maybe Skyler has, quote unquote, forgiven Walt. But at no point in that whole series did I ever see him seek, really seek forgiveness or her give it, really. I can't think of any time where that really was a thing. It was mostly they tolerated each other, but there was never any real forgiveness. And the indication that there would have been is an honest conversation, right? Isn't that part of forgiveness? Is, is I, I know I'm going back to what I said before, but isn't part of it understanding what went wrong? Yes. Especially between a married couple. You absolutely have to... Um, there has to be a how did we travel this road and get here together there and the fault may definitely lie way way more on one person's camp but you know like we like we talked about before you know Skyler definitely ignored the signs for a long time you know for months and months and months and chose to just just move on and i think what you're dealing with here with between the two of them is a an acceptance without forgiveness so i've just accepted this is the reality and i'm gonna go ahead and just go with it and we see later on that that doesn't have that's not really a good path no it's not it's not good between walter and skylar it's definitely not good between walter and jesse because on multiple occasions throughout the entire show, for the most part, I mean, with rare exception, Walter is just doing some really crummy shit to Jesse. Every once in a while, Jesse gets in his licks, but for the most part, it's Walter doing things that are harmful to the relationship directed at Jesse. And yet, it's it's kind of like, well, please come back and, and I'll change. He never really asks for forgiveness. He says things will be different this time. Every time that relationship morphs again, it's, well, this time it'll be different. This time you'll be a full partner. This time you'll have control. And then even as their relationship finally falls apart, you know, Walter says, oh, you know what? I think it's time you have your own cook and you have your own equipment and you set up your own team. And it's like, it's, it's almost as if Walter has a kind of really broken sense of what it means to, to try to like mend things with people to actually fix a problem. It, it it's a very much a cover up one problem with another. Yeah. And, and it kind of harkens back to whatever went wrong between him and Gretchen and, um, Elliot. You know, well, he was yeah. unable, he, he had some issue and might've been a legitimate issue with how, how he was treated. Um, but definitely, the, the, the he had some kind of weird way of reacting to that. He just disappeared out of their lives, as far as I can tell. Pretty much. Pretty much. And there's a giant question mark as to what went on there. I think you mentioned there's a whole maybe TV show season of something just to talk about what went wrong there, you know, between those. But yeah, probably. Um, it, that drug therapist talks about how he killed, I think, his own daughter or something, or his own son or daughter, his own kid. Um, and it's like, well, I, you know, I did this, but what am I supposed to do about it, right? Yeah. And, and his answer was, well, I'll just go tell other people what I'm, what I'm telling you. 
for years and years, I'll say, you just have to accept it. And I just don't know. I think that we make mistakes in this life. And as a Christian, you could say there, there can be forgiveness. But at the same time, a lot of those mistakes are what make up who we become. And if we don't recognize them for what they are, we don't really understand who we are. You know, we, we think we do, but it's almost like it's in cruise control. It's, 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 you know, it's like one of these questions on the list, which is, can there be trust amongst sociopaths? You know, because think about trust versus forgiveness. You know, in some ways, trust is a corollary of the ability to forgive because you're able to have a relationship with someone. And you think about what it doesn't mean to trust someone, but here's, you know, here's the question. Can someone who is sociopathic develop trust with another sociopath? No. No, you're always going to be vying for control and really refusing to trust somebody but still having a relationship with them is kind of a, a way of controlling, I think. Because if you just can't trust somebody absolutely at all, how, how do you have any kind of functional relationship with them other than just very basically transactional, you know, contractual economic. And even then that, that involves trust because it's still just words. And even if you write them down, it's just words on a paper. <laughs> and in the context of this, right, we're, we're dealing with stuff that's not going to be written down. It's yeah. just, it's all, it's just game theory. You know, it's just uh, the, the prisoner's dilemma you know, from hell, really. It's mutual assured destruction, yeah. ultimately. And, and it's what it comes down to. It's not about trust. It's about creating a system of checks and balances and, you know, balance of power in such a way that they don't need to trust each other. They're simply operating out of, you know, pure, I don't want to say self-interest, just pure animalistic logic. You know, what do I want and how do I get it? Um, and the only boundaries that exist are boundaries of destruction. It's like the currency of this type of relationship with people, and this is that kind of tribal relationship on one level. The currency is, is violence and death, as we said. That's the way you gain trust. You gain trust, and it's not real trust, but you gain that level of stability, and we'll call it trust, by doing really terrible things. And yeah. Showing people you can do terrible things so that they know they don't have to trust. They know that if they do something against you, there'll be there'll be outcomes, there'll be repercussions. And that's not trust. That's that's basically a society that is purely paranoid, 100 percent paranoid and where you go through life constantly asking the question, is this person going to kill me? That's it. And if you want to know what it feels like for me to live in a city now, like when I was living in Seattle, because before the call you were, we were talking and, you know, you said, I, I hope you have peace. And I said, listen, dude, a lot more peace here than when I was in Seattle. But when I was in Seattle, it got worse and worse to the point where I had to ask myself the question, do I live around people who would leave me alone or do I live around people who, for whatever reason, would toss me in the back of a truck? And the reality is, by 2021, I felt like I lived around people who would throw me in the back of a truck for no other reason that they didn't want to get thrown in the, tr the back of the truck. That's it. That'd be the logic of it. I don't want to be the one that gets in trouble, so I'll get somebody else in trouble. 
And that's yeah. where it felt, dude, that's where, it, I don't know if it's still that bad, but that's where it felt, it felt, that's what it felt like, dude, at that point, you know, end of 2020, early 2021, it felt like a place where you could not trust that your neighbors could behave in basic ways that could involve things like forgiveness. Like, I don't see any forgiveness. That's the thing about, and I want to cycle back to this because this is the social justice warrior message, okay? Their message is these days, you have to accept whatever I do, period. You have to. It's not a option. It's not a question mark. I have the right to go into your house, to go into your church, to go into a private school. Maybe it's a co-op school. Maybe there's very few students, but I have a right to go into that school and force what I think is the right way to live on you, and that's the definition of acceptance. That's where we're at with acceptance, um, in my opinion, in, in America today, uh, Mike, is, is that acceptance is simply... Accept, acceptance is being willing to have no questions about whatever it is I do or say. That's acceptance. And you have to obey that. And if it takes force, then, you know, so be it. We'll use force to make sure that people are accepted. There's something wrong with that. Uh, fundamentally, yeah. It, it, is a, it is a type of theft, really. You're, you're stealing the other person's authentic self, really, by... by forcing that on them it like it, it's really weird and and it i think that it might be a good topic to bring up the the narcissists that are i think i think there's an intentional creation of narcissism in our in our society um and it, it is really narcissistic to want to force or manipulate the other person's acceptance of you. Um, I mean, and I, it's hard for me to imagine um, wanting to uh, coexist with somebody that you force to accept you. It's, it's really weird. And, and that's a thing like, okay, let's take the abortion debate. All right. I'm a Christian. I'm a hundred percent against abortion and I'm very radical about that but I would never ever want to use force to impose that my belief on somebody else um, because it's <laughs> eventually it's not going to work what I'm going to use violence to prevent violence how does that work mm-hmm. it, it just doesn't make it doesn't make any sense right again I go back to this this really important thing that Christ points out to us that a house divided against itself can't fall can Satan cast out Satan and the answer to that is no you cannot use violence to proactively prevent violence it, it's going to end in destruction every time um, and and so I may believe that you know using abortion is a very evil form of birth control but that's not going to change your mind if i bring a gun and say hey you need to carry this baby to <laughs> but i gotta tell you in in 2020 when 
you know, the very well-dressed BLM Antifa people were marching up and down 12th Avenue in Microsoft t-shirts, and they had the cops, you know, in, in BLM Antifa gear helping them out. I felt like a certain perspective was being violently shoved down my throat. There's no doubt about that. There's no doubt about that at all. Um, especially, you know, some of the videos you, you, you posted of, of that, you know, the, the conflict you got in with, with those people. I mean, those people are a hundred percent narcissistic. They believe that they're anti-fascist by marching as brown shirts did. It's really strange. It is. Um, and I think you have to be a sort of unconscious zombie and also very narcissistic in order to, to, uh, to believe that. I don't know how that, that is a fundamental question. And if I've ever discussed this with, with leftists about talking about tolerance, I say, well, you, you know, what does the word mean to you? It, that's, I mean, if you say that I have to tolerate you, that means that I'm going to f- exercise forbearance, which means that I actually have some sort of right to exact, uh, some sort of revenge or demand, um, some kind of restitution from you. So I don't think you're using the right word here. I think that you're asking something else, something different from me. I think it's, I think acceptance is used in lieu of the true word, which is obedience. But, but acceptance is a very powerful word. It's become loaded. It's one of those words where, Oh, you don't accept people. Then you must be a Nazi. You must yeah. be, right? You just don't accept yeah. anyone. Think about that famous, I think it's Voltaire, but that famous Voltaire quote, you know, sir, I don't agree with a word you say, but I would fight to my death to defend your right to say it. And and here's the thing. There's two parts of that quote. The first part is, I don't agree with you, motherfucker. I don't accept you. Okay, really, I don't. I just think you have about as much a right as any other motherfucker to go down the street and spout your fucking nonsense. That's how I would say it. Okay? Yeah. I, 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 it, it's, to me, the issue of these weird protesters marching down the street wasn't as much the insult as the, you know, plainclothes cops pretending to be a BLM Antifa doing what they were doing and seeing their Glock 19s behind their fucking t-shirts and getting that on fucking camera, okay? That was the insult to me. That's where the camera I had was going. I couldn't give a fuck about what they were saying. I couldn't give a shit about their fucking nonsense, whatever grievances they thought they had. What bothered me was the power of the state being used to promote their grievance, their concern, above anybody else's. Absolutely. You know, it's it's a lot like the issue around COVID. I I don't give a fuck, really, if a person wants to wear a coffee filter on their face and look like a fucking idiot before the universe. That's their, you know, you do you if you want to do that. But when you start telling other people they have to do the same, that's that's when it's all of a sudden, that's not about acceptance. That's not about respect. That's about obedience. That's about everybody right. being the same person. It's like Voltaire said, you don't have to agree with someone to believe they have a right to be who they are. Right. I, I can say I'm okay with people up to a point. And, and I'll say I'm okay with who you are up to a point. If I see you physically assaulting somebody or a child, then I have a question, what do I do? But if all you are is being an adult with other adults and doing some type of stupid nonsense and you're not taxing me to pay for it, 
for the most part, I'm not interested. You know, you go ahead and do that. That's your soul. That's your life. When you start doing things that do impact me, then I have to ask the question, what is your justification for this? Right. You know, why, why for example, are so many college credits, and listen, this goes back to when I was in college and maybe even when you were in college, but why, for example, when I attended the University of Washington, did it seem like nearly half the classes I took were about the same type of garbage we're fucking talking about? And that is convincing you that there's some crime you committed or will commit and then having you go through a mental process of accepting things you just think are bullshit. I'd say yeah. half my time at the University of Washington was spent doing that. Yeah, it is a it is a weird form of um, imposing yourself on somebody else. I, I, I've never understood it. And I'll go back to the other end of that, which is why would you want to force somebody to accept you and then have a relationship with that person. Like, why, why don't you just go find other people? Yeah. You know, that I don't get. That's, that's a really strange aspect of this issue as well. You know, when you talk about forgiveness and revenge and acceptance, there's another word that's big in season three because it involves a lot of things that did happen and will happen. And that's revenge. You know, seeking yeah. revenge as a thing. But I would argue a kind of revenge, maybe not exactly revenge, but similar to revenge, is schadenfreude, isn't it? Like, like you have a note here about Jesse at the hospital. Jesse gets beaten up really bad by Hank. He's at the hospital. Hank gets attacked by the two assassins, you know, the ones that were supposed to kill Walt. Hank ends up going to the hospital you know, Jesse's outside and sees Hank being rolled in, and all of a sudden it's like everything's a lot better. And oh yeah, maybe I will go work with Walter at the secret underground lab. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That, that's how he gets to. He doesn't get the forgiveness with Walt. He just gets his. Um, it's a lot like the meth conversations. It's funny these conversations about what the crystal meth does to you. What Jesse gets from that is the boost he needs to take it to the next step, to actually decide, okay, I, I can work with Walt because whatever burden I was carrying of revenge against Hank is now taken care of. It's satiated. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. When he describes meth to uh, that uh, Indian girl at the gas station... Um, you know, he, he's like, it's awesome. You get sharp, like action dagger feelings. Yeah. And, um, and how do you know what an action dagger feeling is? I think it, it is interesting. You know, we, we definitely, humans definitely enjoy, um, I don't know if drugs are an escape or if they're a window into something else. You know, it, it, it is an interesting conversation that, that could be had separately, but <clears throat> there is definitely this desire to want to bridge the, the, the chasm that we have, that separation that we have from God, from the eternal, from the pure, from the sublime. Um, and I think drugs are a, are a, a way that we, try, that we use to try to attempt to attain the sublime. You know, 
here in this world. That's, yeah. as you point out, not definitely not Eden. Um, <laughs> it is a world where um, animals kill to survive, where plants survive on the decomposed bodies of living things. Um, it is a, it is a, it is definitely not. Uh, there is a cost to everything. There's a cost in energy. There's a cost in time. There's a cost in space. Um, there's opportunity costs every minute. Um, and there are definitely, uh, you know, constraints on, on everything. And there is a desire embedded in us to break free of those constraints, to try and um, deny the fundamental nature of the universe. You know, we've talked about that a little bit before, where that's kind of the impulse behind statism is you, you, you kind of want free energy. You do. And, and you know, if, if the cheapest alternative, it, and I'm going to just cycle back to this revenge thing again a little bit, the cheapest alternative to actual revenge is to see some harm befall someone else. Like, it's yeah. not revenge, but people get a benefit from that. Like people, this is the thing about some of these rituals that happen, and I believe they're state-promoted rituals, okay? I, I don't want to talk too much about George Floyd, but I truly don't know how real any of that was. But I do know one thing. There was a bunch of people that made angry and probably a bunch of other people that had the schadenfreude. They, they looked at it and they said to themselves, good, good. I've known people over the years who would watch that show, that show Cops, and they would get excited like it was a football game. You know, yeah. the cops are busting down a door. The cops are grabbing somebody. Look at that cop. He's got him in a sleeper hold or something. And it, it would be exciting. It would be like, yeah, football game or professional wrestling. But again, it's purportedly real footage of police officers doing their job, which sometimes looks pretty violent and distressing. And yet these folks would get a, a kind of a vile benefit from it, experiential benefit from seeing this being done. And I don't know. I, the, yeah. I don't want to dig too deep into just this one thing, but it seems like schadenfreude and revenge are connected, and they're this darker side. It's like on one side you've got forgiveness. And I would say even acceptance in a way, but, but it's not the same thing. And then the other side you've got you know violence, threats, revenge, and schadenfreude. Yeah. And that's your entire spiritual existence. It's like... And Walter has so many schadenfreude experiences, you know, experiences where he didn't have to do anything, but something violent befell somebody else. And he could kind of think, well, you know, look at that. Look what happened to that person, you know. <laughs> I mean, think about, think about Walter. How many people, I guess he did run over those drug dealers in season, you know, in, in season three. He does do that. He does... He does, you know, hit them with a car and stuff. But still, dude, you think about stuff like that and you ask yourself, what is Walter's notion of murder? What is his notion of revenge? How does he think in that world? Or is it just kind of autopilot? I don't know. Yeah, it reminds me of that uh, Tool song. And... Um... I, I do enjoy certain songs uh, by Tool because I think Maynard really taps into um, the essence of our humanity in a lot of ways. Um, 
but that song vicarious where he talks about how i mean the chorus goes um because i need to watch things die from a distance vicariously i live while the whole world dies you all need it too don't lie (laughs) and then he's like why don't we just admit it like just admit this is this is the plane that we live in and the only way that we're going to get past it is if we admit that this is the game that's going on and that this whole paradigm that we've erected around us is a lot of vicarious um, uh, fulfillment where we're kind of putting the things that we desire off onto somebody else and pretending that that's not actually what we want. But, but we, we, you know, he has this, uh, frown out your one face, but with the other stare at like a junkie into the TV, um, you know, watching the violence, watching the, the story where somebody kills their husband or, um, you know, uh, it's, it's kind of an interesting, interesting thing. And I think the schadenfreude taps into that, but the vicarious nature where we really want to offload that responsibility that we have or shirk it. Um, we don't want to forgive, but we also don't want, we don't want to go through the work, the real serious work of forgiveness and, and restitution, but we want somebody to take care of it and make us feel better. And then, you know, we can just put it in a box and pretend that it's not actually happening. And I go back to the thought that I've had many times since 2020 about how, you know, the government could drop small, small diameter bombs on my house and then just tell the na- my neighbors that, you know, I, I had a meth lab going or I was making bombs, you know, I was a terrorist. And, um, sorry, the dog's bothering the cat. Oh, there we go. Sure. Um, and, uh, so, um, I, I think that, that our, your neighbors, the fact that your neighbors, we can all picture, I can picture anyways, <laughs> and I believe that anybody who thinks about it can, the neighbors would just accept that. Be like, wow, I guess you really never know somebody, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know. Well, it is, a, it, it is a it, very, it, go ahead. It, it kind of exploit the, the situation that we're in exploits that whole um, desire to, uh, you know, have somebody else do your thing. And that's comes from the schadenfreude slash vicarious nature. I don't know if I'm making any sense. No, that makes sense. Um, it, it's one of those questions I think we've talked about between both of us many times. And whether it's the relationship between Gus and Hank or the relationship between, I mean, Gus and Walter or the relationship between Walter and Jesse or, you know, Walter and Skylar or any of these other relationships. One of the things that strikes me is that they can never really get to where they want to go with resolving things because they're not really seeking forgiveness. They're seeking to put it behind them. It's kind of like, let's just put it behind us. Let's just leave it in the past. You know, we did that thing. We tried to kill that guy. It's like Mike. You know, you point out that Mike and Gus actually saved Walter's life in season three. You know, they call off those assassins and redirect them towards 
Hank, and Hank's the guy that takes the hit, the 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 hit, the the the, the shots. Um, it, it, you know, at one point in the storyline, you get the notion that um, that Mike really likes working for Gus, and yet in the end, and this is further in the future, in the end. Mike ends up working with Walt, and it's not because of forgiveness. So what is it? What is it that drives these types of people who have done great harm against each other to move on? And maybe it is that pure game theory. Like we're, we're really in a world where there's no context of ethics. It really is about outcomes. Like how do I maximize my outcome? Yeah, when, when you boil it down to... So... I think that what we're dealing with is a lot of people who use other people, use relationships in an instrumental way. So they see people as um, an instrument that I can play or manipulate or use to achieve my own end. And, and when, when you, when it's, when relationships are that way, they're, they're going to, not be healthy that's for sure um you know i you know if if people get married because they make each other happy um that's probably not going to be a very good uh you know sustainable thing because your life is going to throw you curveballs you're gonna have hardship yeah things might not always go the way you plan them to and so, you know, I think you need to marry that. You need to marry that other person because they, because you love them for who they are, not 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 for any any other reason, but because you love them for who who they are and unconditionally. And you know, maybe. And, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Um, I was going to say maybe this is where the ethics of the problem bridge with the metaphysics of it. Because if we go back to the beginning of this conversation almost, you know, we both recognize that there's a world we thought we lived in, and then there's a world we actually lived in. And that kind of question, which is in a lot of ways a metaphysical question, it does impact your ethical relationship to the world. It really does. You know, how you see the world is also how you're going to see yourself and others. And it's also why you get gangs. Because if you have people in desperate situations, if you have people that are marginalized, and it might be artificial, I mean, in our society, a lot of this is artificial. It's not, it doesn't have to be this way, but it is this way. Then they're going to develop a type of existence that works with that, even if it isn't the whole truth. Like, even if there is a greater reality beyond just being poor and being desperate, they're going to build a world around that. And yeah, you end up with tribes and gangs. It's not its not a racial thing. It's, it really is about being in a situation and trying to figure out a way to live in it. Um, you can't really divorce the metaphysics from the ethics, can you? Like if, if, if you get married, if you get married to somebody, I just want to say this, you get married to somebody and you say it's all about happiness. Well, if that's the truth, then your marriage will be fine if you're always happy, right? But but as you pointed out, what if you're not always happy? What if there are days when that other person makes you sad? Does that mean that's the day you need to get divorced? You know, I mean sometimes. I mean, I think I think that's that is that is a a, a real issue in our society is that we place a 
we have a really weird definition of happiness. Um, you know, happiness is the present. Um, I think and, we've been convinced, and I don't think this is a capitalism thing. I think this is a crooked feature of our current society. A lot of people have been convinced that a pile of stuff is happiness, even if it's not doing anything. Like whoever has the biggest pile of stuff is the most happy. Yeah. That's so far from true. <laughs> it, it might even be the opposite, right? Right. I mean, think about think about how happy can you be? And maybe that this is the key. Happiness does not exist in Walter White's world because how happy or joyful can you be if you're in a world where you can't trust anybody? Where you can't treat anybody other than as an instrument, as you pointed out, or that you yourself might be being treated like an instrument, where do you find joy and happiness in that world? Yeah, you don't. I mean, look at Gus Fring. There's a miserable guy. You never see it. He he says he has family, but you never see any family. He lives alone in this house someplace, you know? And, And he's basically... He takes on the role of being this diminutive, diminutive, um, you know, fast food chain owner. But you wonder, is it even a role? Is he really just this very, very limited, small scope, I just want to do these things and succeed person? But even he, and this is part of the story, I think, of season, you know, the future seasons. But even he carries this this little unexploded mine of revenge. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's really the only thing driving him. Yep. And that's, that's a hard it, that, being driven by. That's a hard life to spend decades with revenge in your heart. Yeah. And that's the power of forgiveness, right? Yes. That you forgive somebody because that's that's the good thing for you to do. It's the right thing for you to do, not because you expect anything in return. The only thing that should return to you out of forgiveness is you letting go of the bitterness and the the and foregoing the revenge and letting that happen, letting that happen on its own. And that's a, an entirely different matter from restoration. That's a completely different thing. You know, for this episode, I have been and and we both have, but I have been kind of jumping around, and I think we've covered most of the key points. Um, there's some other notes here, but they're really just kind of more asides than necessarily direction we want to go in. Yeah. We're, we're at about, we're a little more, I think we're, um, yeah, we're, we're more than an hour now. So is there something you would like to talk about before we close out on season three? I was, I had this idea of Walter as a kind of um, tragic Magoo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> on the, um, uh, you know, Mike telling Mike E telling him, you know, Walter, sometimes it doesn't hurt to have someone watching your back. And I kind of sometimes think of myself as a Mr. Magoo. Um, I don't know if you've ever had any close calls in life where, you know, if you had left your destination a second earlier or a second later, maybe you'd have been in a really horrific accident and, you know, looking back on a few of those times in my life and I think how many times has that happened? And I didn't even know it. Yeah. Like there was, you know, you know, crap going on behind 
me after I just just left some place, um, or just before I got there. Uh, you know, uh, I got held in a meeting at work and stayed there an hour late and just missed an accident or something. I, I don't know. It's one of those things where it just reminded me of just how little control we have over really anything. And you can only control two things about yourself. And that's where you are and what you do when you're there. That's it. And I think that is the the kind of key to living a satisfied life for me is my daily acknowledgement that I'm not in control of things. I cannot survive trying to extend my control beyond where I go and precisely what I do and say when I'm there. Well, it, and yeah, go ahead. there's a great, there's a great proverb. Um, I think you might've alluded to it last week. Um, but one uh, in, in an early proverb, he talks about how even a, a foolish man can appear wise by saying nothing. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I, I was I was thinking about that, and also you can appear wise by doing nothing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if 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 action's not required, then don't do it. Like, think about it for a minute. Yeah. I, the one thing it just struck me too when you were talking about that is that. Because of the worldview Walter has, he could never, ever achieve his goals. Like, what he wanted to achieve was a kind of sense of peace. And then, you know, of course, he'd die and he'd leave his family a big pile of money. But he's also somebody that wants to control everything. And the great thing about having, you know, Jesus in your life, having the Lord in your life, is that you can give up on that idea that you control much of anything. Like you just said, you can control where you're at and what you're doing where you're at, and that's about it. But for Walter, it's like, no, I have to control everything. And it becomes so ornate and so complex that really, in the future seasons, he does take on being 100% Heisenberg, and that he can control everything. He can control what people do around him, he can control their decisions, and he gets angry when people do things that are out of his control. You know, yeah. you know, it's like, wait a minute, you can't do this. I'm in control. I'm in charge. Listen to me. I'm always right. But you could never be at peace living that way. Yeah. How how could yeah. you be really ever? You can't. You can't. Because you're 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 living in a fantasy. Well, you're never it, gonna be able to bridge that gap. Yeah. It's it's kind of like, you know, I don't want to beat up on that old Napoleon quote, but I will say this, when people look at the government or the state and they ask themselves, you know, why is it there? What is it doing? It probably wants to be Walter White, but it can never do that. No matter how hard it tries, it will never be able to control everything. And yet that is its goal in life, to control everything that is reasonable to control everything that can be over time. It doesn't necessarily start out there because it doesn't have the resources to go there, but that's its ultimate goal. And there's never gonna be peace. It's like when a Marxist describes the future of communism and it sounds really great, but when you break it down, you realize it's nothing but pain and stress and control and things that can't be controlled. It's misery. Yeah. You know? I mean, about the only thing you could ever attempt to control when it comes to people is maybe a prison. And even prisons are not really under that much control. 
I mean, not in terms of what the prisoners will end up doing if they can conspire to do so. Right. Right? I mean, if they can figure out a way to shove something up some spot or have a bird fly something in, if they can figure out a way around the system, they will. So even the prison, the idealized system of control, it, it's it's a fantasy. It's it's like that podcast we did about Jeremy Bentham and Foucault and the Panopticon. The Panopticon sounds great if you're a statist. You and I are horrified by it. But if you're a statist, it sounds great. You can build a system of mirrors and, and observation rooms. And even if there isn't someone in the room, there's still that basic conversation, as Foucault would point out, telling you you're being observed. Because you have no way of knowing. Right. Right? And and who knows? Maybe that's all it takes. But that doesn't sound like utopia ever, does it? It sounds like a, it, it does sounds like a lot of misery, really, in the end. This idea yeah. that, you know, the most idealized form of control, it, you know what I think I'm saying? The most idealized abstract form of control is a Skinner box. You know, the boxes that B.F. Skinner used to operantly train pigeons and rats. You know, there's a fucking button and there's a fucking, there's electroshocks coming out of the bottom of the fucking cage. That is the perfected society for a statist. Yeah. Put everybody in a fucking cage... They're being observed, or at least they have no way of knowing if they're being observed 24-7. Give them positive incentives, give them negative incentives, and then just see what the fuck happens. And yeah. there's no way you're ever going to be happy that way. It's, it's almost like saying the only people that could functionally run a society would have to be, by definition, sociopathic. Because how yeah. could any decent person want to have that fucking job? How? No, you have to you have to silo it. Everything has to be siloed. Yeah. Yep. And it's also why with siloing and and um you know the way in which things are broken up into smaller parts, not everybody has to know about the horror being committed because everyone's doing a small enough piece they don't have to be aware. And that's how a lot of it gets done too, is just not being aware of what's going on around you. There are a lot right. listen, there are a lot of characters in the orbit of Walter White that do things that contribute to the evil, but, but they're not really evil. Like like those characters that Jesse's friends that would go buy stuff for them. You know, go 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 buy me this, go buy me that. Right. You know, they seem like nice enough characters. They they seem like good enough dudes. And yet, in their own way, they're contributing to the same type of destruction. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's really about it, Dan. It is, it is. And I appreciate you talking again. We got season four, um, perhaps coming up next weekend if we can do it, if you're able to. And other than that, I hope you have a great rest of your week, dude. You too, Dan. Okay. All right.